So I stand here today before you as a product of intercessory prayer. If you don't know what intercessory prayer is, that intercessory is not a word that gets used a lot in our culture, but uh, interceding or intercessory prayer is uh, going before the Lord on someone else's behalf. It is interceding, stepping in for them. Um, I remember when I was uh, a kid, seven years old, my family left, uh, moved from Richmond, Virginia over to the coast, and we were not able to move into our home right away. And so we ended up living with my grandmother for about uh, three or four weeks, which ended up being a really precious time with her. Uh, she was a very strong uh, uh, old, older woman who had, um, in World War II, lost her husband. She was a 36-year-old widow with four kids raised them in a very, very poor uh, context um, and taught them uh, the, the ways of the Lord. And, and they all grew up as healthy followers of Jesus. Um, and she taught Sunday school for 35 years, uh, which is just amazing to me. I haven't even been in ministry 35 years. Uh, and so she was such an example. And I remember waking up one night when we were at home, at her home, and, and her bedroom, her bedroom was right across from the bedroom I was staying in. And so I got up and I had to go to the bathroom. And I went and I looked, her light was on, and she had, uh, she was sitting in her bed, and she had her Bible, and she had her head bowed. I didn't bother her. I just went to the bathroom. But it was the next morning that she told me that every night she read her Bible and she prayed. And she said, I prayed for you. And she goes, I pray for you all the time. And I remember her repeating that a couple of times um, over the years. And then it, it, it didn't hit me until, uh, until after I came to Christ in college. And I would go home from college and she was, um, uh, her rest home that she was living in was uh, on the way to my parents' house. So I would always, that was my first stop coming back into our small town was to stop by and see my granny. Uh, that's what I called her. And she, uh, she was always so glad to see me. She'd had several strokes, but was, um, was still just, um, just a, a sweet person to be around. And I remember talking to her and I said, granny, I, and this, this was towards the end. I knew she, she didn't have a lot left, a lot of time left. And I said, granny, I, I know you prayed for me. I want to tell you the Lord has been good. He answered your prayers. I, I, you know, I told him about following Jesus. I told her about that I was going into ministry. Um, and I saw her face light up with joy as she knew that God had answered those prayers over literally a couple decades uh, for me. Um, and, I, and I remember her looking at me, and this, is, this is just tore me up when she did. She's like, can you take it from here? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll do my best. Um, but in a sense, it, it, I think like it was a weird passing of a mantle, like where I felt like I'm now supposed to be interceding for my kids, my family, and for others. Um, and that, that modeled me, uh, modeled to me what intercession looks like for an individual. But then intercession can also be for a group of people. Um, this church, we, if, if you're not aware, back in August of last year, we set aside a month of prayer and we've really been ramping up opportunities and, and, um, moments of prayer uh, for this church. And I don't believe it's, a, it's unusual. I don't believe it's, it's any coincidence that we have actually experienced the fastest growing period uh, in the history of our church. Um, even this morning, there were <clears throat> Edison uh, and other members of the prayer team were leading uh, some folks in the prayer room this morning, praying for this church, for this gathering, for you and for me. Um, and I believe God's answering those prayers. And in the passage that we're looking at today, uh, well, one other, one other example I wanted to share with you just related to us is last, back last fall, I got to meet, I was with a, a group of pastors from across New England, pastors and churches were meeting, and, um, 
and I met this pastor, older retired pastor who, who told me, he said, and I vaguely remembered him uh, from when I first landed here and, and he was still in ministry and, and we were connected through the network of churches. And he said, he saw me and he goes, hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to share with you, I still pray for your church every week. I've been praying for it since 2010. And I go, okay, I think we'll know in heaven, but I, I gotta go like, how much of what God's done at City on a Hill has been like this, this faithful brother just interceding for us on a regular basis? Um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and in this passage today, we, we get a picture of Abraham interceding with, um, uh, with the Lord for uh, the city of Sodom. And one of the things that we need to, to understand is that I think there, there are reasons that you and I don't intercede. One is that there is an enemy that wants us to not intercede for others. Uh, not pray for others, because uh, when we pray, he knows that there is power in least, so he seeks to derail us, distract us, lead into, us into temptation, or at least uh, keep us busy with something that's not prayer. Um, and, you know, we, we all struggle with it, and it's not, uh, it's not time. I know if I asked you, and, and somebody asked me, well, you know, uh, why don't you pray more? I think most of us would admit we probably don't pray enough. We don't pray enough for other people. We kind of know that. We sort of say we believe in the power of prayer, but we also don't pray much. And yet uh, we had time to watch that new series on Netflix, right? And not just like one episode, right? We watched like eight episodes. Or we, we had that ability to do a deep dive into a news cycle and a particular topic uh, this week, or or we had a chance to watch uh, a two or three hour Celtics game where they just destroyed another team, uh, which is what they're doing this year. Uh, and and we find time to do that. And I stop and I think about that, and I'm like, how how sinister is that of the enemy that he distracts us? These things are not evil. It's not evil to look at news. It's not evil to watch Netflix. Not evil to watch the Celtics. But when that replaces time of intercession. We, and, and yet we, we feel squeezed on time to actually pray, it's because we're not actually valuing prayer. I believe it's because we've lost sight of who God is. We've lost sight of, of, of his holiness, of his perfection. Uh, we've lost sight of what it means to be called to be God's people. And we've lost sight of the seriousness of um, the, the situation of the world around us and people around us. That there are spiritual realities that have eternal consequences. This isn't like, uh, well, a person might not have a good day if I don't pray for them. No, there are people who are suffering. There are people who are under the enemy's control, who are, who are in bondage, who need prayer. Yes, they need people to share the gospel with them. Yes, they need people to engage with them and love them and serve them in very practical ways. But they also need prayer. Prayer unleashes the spiritual power of God to do that which the physical can never do. In our passage today, we see Abraham get a front row seat to God's justice. He also gets a sense of God's righteous call on him and his, uh, his, follow, his, his family. And then we see the invitation to partner with God in interceding. So let's walk through these. First, we see God's holy justice. Now, I realize speaking of God's justice or God's judgment in our culture is not very popular. At best, it seems irrelevant, like talking about horse carriages you know, like the finer points of horse carriages, or at worst, it is seen as abusive, oppressive, 
and, 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 and damaging to people to actually speak of the judgment of God. Now, I'm not speaking about the, the church that makes it their thing to, to just come down with a hammer on everything in the world. That's not the New Testament. That's not the way the New Testament talks about speaking, uh, speaking what God's message is to the world. Um, but neither is it never anything about what's wrong or what is uh, broken or evil. And so God's justice intersects with us in a very personal way because we cannot help but make judgment calls about right and wrong. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Ironically, in our culture, that, that's, that pushes back, secular culture pushes back significantly on the idea of the judgment of God and that it's wrong and making judgments like that, cannot help but make judgments. You realize that, right? And in fact, to actually make a judgment about God's judgment is bad. You shouldn't talk about that. It's hurtful. It's damaging. It's destructive to people is actually judging something. But yet secular culture says there is no moral absolutes. There are no objective right or wrong. But let me suggest this. You can't, you can't push off on something else unless your feet are planted on something. You can't push this over and say that's wrong unless you have your feet planted on something you think is right. And yet our culture says there is no absolute right. There is no absolute wrong, which is the irony of the secular culture because they claim there are no moral absolutes, yet they cannot help but use Christian language of right and wrong, good and evil. So that sense of justice that is in you and me that wants to call out where we see evil, is rooted in who God is. This inner sense of right and wrong is because we're made in the image of God. Yet our compass, how we, how we discern these things, is broken. We've already seen God's justice show up several times in Genesis. It began with Adam and Eve, right? And that was pretty quick. God, God was like, okay, you guys got to leave, leave. And it's because they were in God's perfect presence at that point. So there was, no, there, there was either incineration and they would have been physically killed at that point or they had to leave and God chose to send them away from his presence. But even with Noah in the time of Noah, it's very clear that God didn't like just show up and be like, all right, somebody sinned. Let's, let's kill them all, right? God was patient. God waited. And with Sodom and Gomorrah, what we find is that God has given generations to this city And yet this city has only grown more oppressive, more evil. We know from the uh, the next chapter that uh, one of the major sins is sexual immorality. But uh, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, in Ezekiel and other passages in the Old Testament, we find they're guilty of injustice towards outsiders. We see uh, that references to them oppressing the poor. This is a city with manifold sins. And their, their evil had risen to God so that God was needed to judge it. Abraham recognized God as holy. This is an interesting thing. Abraham didn't come and go, who are you? Who do you think you are to judge this city over here? No, he knew God had a right to. God had a right to speak in and bring justice where he weighed it. Notice the language over and over again of Abraham and how he understands this privilege of speaking to this holy and just God. Verse 27, he says, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. 
This is saying you're the creator, I'm the creature. You're infallible, I'm fallible. You're eternal, I'm momentary. I'm entering into a conversation with, with something completely other than me. And this is the root of understanding God's right to bring justice where God sees fit. He is not a human being. Any sense that you and I have of justice, of right and wrong, is ultimately because of who God is. God is the ultimate arbiter of justice and righteousness. He is the maker, sustainer, almighty one. We are but dust and ashes. And Abraham recognizes that God, out of who he is, is the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 25. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I think it's so ironic that we push back in our culture so strongly on the idea of judgment from God, and yet we are so quick to judge each other. Literally, it's like a hobby. Just get on Twitter. It's like a hobby for people. It's a pastime. It's entertainment. We, we've created a culture now that, that, that judges people wholesale. It's called what? Cancel culture, right? This idea, cancel is a nice word for condemn or condemnation. We have a condemnation culture. We believe we have the right to condemn a person wholesale. We are very quick to do it. It's easy for us to judge, but it's not our role. It's God's. We don't have the right to condemn anyone. Jesus himself, this is where Jesus is saying, judge not lest you be judged, right? That's a very famous passage in our culture. But weirdly, we, we don't believe that applies to us. We think we have the right to judge others. And again, I'm not saying there is no good and evil. It's that our, our justice uh, compass is so broken, we feel like we have the right to step into God's space and condemn. One of my favorite um, books and movies of all time is uh, Lord of the Rings. Many of you have been around Cohen know that. But uh, in the Fellowship of the Rings, uh, Frodo is, is like ready to condemn Smeagol. He wants him to die. He thinks he should have died. Um, but Gandalf, like, puts an end to it very quickly. It's what he says to him. He says, many who live deserve death. Some who die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Have you found yourself stepping into God's role of judging other people? Because you cannot come to God like Abraham did in humility and also be living in a space of judgment for other people. God is the holy judge. I would argue that if you are one of these people who find yourself quick to condemn, quick to, to jump on other people, I believe this is antithetical. And it has an inverse relationship with your joy and peace in Christ. Because, I, because you can't have joy and peace in Christ on one hand and spend your time in that constant fight or flight mode of condemning other people and jumping on other people and constantly, you know, being the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong with other people. I'm not saying you can't call things out. Jesus did that. There is a, a space to do that. But Jesus taught us to actually love our enemies and pray for them, right? Not condemn them. And so, 
And, and folks who do this always seem to find something to call out. And some of you know these folks. Even if there's nothing that's really noteworthy, they will find something to condemn. They will find something to nitpick and to, oh, these people are evil, stay away from them, right? And it's because that's what's in their heart. So God, God is the holy judge and has every right to judge. And Abraham recognizes that and it pushes him to intercede for Sodom. And we get to that in a minute. But before we do, we need to see the second part of this picture of why God was judging. And that is God's righteous people. So we see God's holy judgment. Secondly, we see God's righteous people. By the way, it should not amaze us that God judges us. Like, if you really understand who God is and who we are, it should not be a mystery. Our own consciences kind of judge us, don't they? And if our own consciences judge us for our sin, then how much more so before the holy creator of the universe? What really should amaze us, what should blow our socks off, what should blow our minds up is that God would choose to love us. That God would actually choose to do something about our sin. And would actually choose to take that judgment on himself so that we won't have to face judgment. That's what we should be amazed at. That God would love us. But our culture's got that backwards, don't they? God would never judge me, but of course he loves me. I'm awesome, right? But I think that's like just, that's just an outward facing reality. I've yet to meet someone who honestly in their own heart doesn't see their own brokenness. It's a facade to act like you deserve God's love. It's a defense mechanism because you know exactly how little you do deserve God's love. So God's righteous people. God's justice is the backdrop for what God's about to do to Sodom. But seeing it as God's plan um, for Abraham, God's, what he was going to do in Abraham's life, motivates telling Abraham what he's going to do. God is, God is literally... <laughs> we're overhearing God's thoughts. God's talking to himself. Um, that's okay. You do. God does too, so you're in good company. Verses 18 and 19. Seeing that Abraham surely, he goes, shall I tell him what's going to happen? Seeing that Abraham surely will become a great nation and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So Abraham will be a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And specifically, God is thinking out loud because Sodom is about to experience judgment. And they are so far outside of, of, of what I'm doing with Abraham and the righteous uh, people that I'm going to create through him, that I'm going to judge them. I need to let him know what I'm about to do and why I'm about to do it. Because he needs to understand as a lesson for himself and his followers, this is what happened when people don't draw near to the Lord. This is what happened when people make a bid for, for independence and self-dependence and self-determination instead of submitting to their creator. They wanted, God wanted Abraham to understand what he was doing. And verse 19 says, teach them so that they may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment. So Abraham was supposed to teach his children and his children's children. Hey, you know those folks 
Sodom and Gomorrah, there, was, there were two cities that were disobedient to God. And, and, and in fact, not just like a little bit disobedient, but the whole cities had, every person in the cities had become holy, unrighteous. And he was, wanted them to, to see what happens if you reject God's rule and embrace sin. And God knew, God, this is an early warning. I don't know, you, you know, you, as a parent, one of the things you learn to do is realize you have to repeat lessons over and over with your kids. That, that you know, it's not, I would love to tell you, you're going to be that parent. And those of you that aren't parents yet, you're going to be that parent that you're just going to tell your kid one time, don't do that. And they're going to be like, okay, mommy, you know, and just never do it. No. Like you have to repeat it. And then you sometimes have to show them what happens when you do that and why that's bad and why that's hurtful. Because what happens to the people, God's people in the Old Testament? They in, begin to intermix with the, with the pagan, ungodly people around the nation of Israel, and they began to bring on their practices. Even to a point, at one point, they were burning babies as sacrifices to the false gods of the land. Like that's, but, but God knew, God knew that if, if his people were to dwell in, 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 in fullness of righteousness, they needed to see the sin of the peoples around them and, and be able to uh, resist that. But they didn't. But Sodom and Gomorrah is the first example of what happens. And this can happen to you and I as well. We become desensitized to sinful patterns in our world and our culture. We lose our distinctiveness as Jesus' church. It is, and it, it is our distinctiveness that demonstrates to this watching culture who Jesus is and what it is like to live under his rule and his kingdom. We are, as a church and as a people, as a part of the larger body of Christ in the city, demonstrating to the larger city what it is like to live in the kingdom of God. What it is like to live under Jesus as your king. And if you're picking and choosing what you like and don't like that King Jesus is, uh, has, has taught, then you're not living under the king. And when the church begins to do that, just like the Israelites began to do that, we lose our distinctiveness and we begin to look more and more and more like the culture. Listen, I, I, I know it's hard being a Christian right now, but it is not near as hard as it is in many places and in history. What is the worst thing that's going to happen to you? Okay, you, theoretically, you might could lose your job. Might, maybe. I mean, that's a pretty extreme case. But what is the most common thing? Someone will make a snide remark. Right? And I would argue, if, if you're living in a way that no one ever makes a remark about the way that you're living, then are you actually reflecting Christ fully? In his book, The Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World, Larry Hurtado researched how the small, powerless, uneducated, poor, uninfluential, but distinctly countercultural community of the early church changed the fabric of the Roman Empire in three centuries. He highlights five distinctives that they lived by that gave evidence for the kingdom of God. One is that they were multi-ethnic. Not just multi-ethnic as in there was the visible diversity, but they actually shared life together across ethnic and classes, which was very unusual. They had a care for the poor, radical generosity to the orphans, to the widows, um, to those in need. They were also peacemakers 
known for uh, bringing peace into situations that they entered. They had a biblical sexual ethic. One, one commentator said once their wallets were open and their beds were closed, which was the opposite of the culture, which was their beds were open and their wallets were closed. And then they were pro <clears throat> all of life from the womb to the tomb. Now, what's interesting, and I heard a, I heard a, I was at a conference with Tyler recently, and, and I heard a guy highlight these, and he says, it's interesting, where do progressive Christians fall? The top two, right? That's what the, the progressive Christianity celebrates. What about uh, conservative or fundamentalist Christianity? It's the bottom two, isn't it? Who's in the middle? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. He actually made a point, this guy, he said, like, it may be one of the greatest distinctive markers of the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God in your city in the next 20 years for, for your church to be peacemakers. But I would argue it is actually all five of these together, the tension of all five of these together in the life of the local church of people following Jesus that reflect the righteousness of Christ, that reflect life in his kingdom. To remind us, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Our city desperately needs to see people fully surrendered to Christ, displaying his glory and his goodness. It matters if you and I embrace a holy life like him. First Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we see, I hope you see the tensions here. We see on one hand, God's justice, that he has a right to judge sin. Secondly, the distinctiveness of what God was doing in Abraham and his people, that, that, that God uh, was building a righteous people. And then thirdly, what we hear and lastly see here is God's invitation to partnership. This is an invitation to intercession, if you will. It's a unique situation. Abraham humbly comes to the Lord and starts asking if God will condemn the entire city, right? Now, what if there's 50 people in the city? God, will you, will you spare the city? What's he doing at this point? He's interceding for the city, this broken, rebellious, sinful city. He's like, will you kill everybody if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous? God's, uh, Abraham's interceding. And, and, and what's, what's God's response? Does he go, dude, I'm God. You need to shut up now. You're ashes and dust. I will judge who I judge, right? No, that's what some Christians would maybe teach or some churches would teach. That's how God rolls. But how does God actually respond? He allows Abraham to enter into this conversation, interceding for this city and begins to slowly negotiate with him, allowing Abraham to partner with him. Now, God wasn't like, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know Abraham was going to bring this up. 50 people, gee, let me think about that. 40, maybe. Okay, 30, 20, 10. All right, yeah, okay, I I'll let you have that, Abraham. No, what's interesting is like, the God knew this. God, God entered into it. It was for Abraham's benefit and for yours and my example of seeing what it means to intercede with God. 
If you go back to why Adam and Eve were created in this world, right? It was uh, to be partners with God in bringing God's dominion and rule and reign and, and perfection in the world. Now, as, as a follower, God was going to uh, work through Abraham to bring a nation, right? A righteous, follow, a righteous people. And in doing so, God said, Abraham, I'm going to let you have conversations with me where you can begin to intercede for your kingdom, for my kingdom to advance in the world. God ultimately spared the city until he got Lot out, there was, which basically said there was one righteous in the city, four if you include the rest of Lot's family. We'll see this next week, but um, we'll look at that more next week. But the lesson is that God listens when we intercede. In fact, he's ordained intercession. He invites us into partnering with him through intercession. We see this in the Old Testament. When Moses interceded for God's people, right? God was like, I'm going to wipe this nation out, they are all a bunch of rebels. I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to make you the new Abraham and start a new nation. Why did God do that? God wanted Moses to step in and begin to, to experience what it means to intercede for others. He interceded for the people. We see this in David as well. But no one is an intercessor like Jesus in his lifetime, he interceded over and over again. He would often escape early in the morning and go, go away by himself to pray. And uh, even one of my favorite stories, when Peter, was, when Peter is told, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to uh, sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me three times. And, and, uh, and then he, just adds, he didn't have to add this, but he says, but I'm praying for you. Jesus was praying for Peter, even while Peter was denying Jesus. Jesus interceded in his lifetime. He also intercedes now. Uh, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. He intercedes for us. And he invites you and me and our little ash and dust to be intercessors with him, partnering with him to see his kingdom come. Listen, there are spiritual realities at work with the people around you who do not know Christ that you can never overcome with an argument or intellectual information. You, the problem with many of us, and I, I fall into this too as well, I think that my, my friend who is not following Jesus, their issue is largely sociological, or it's intellectual, or it's emotional. It's not. Those things are not the chief issue. It is spiritual. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 4, 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People cannot see Christ. They can't see the beauty of Christ. They can't see the grace of Christ. Listen, my problem in high school when I was pursuing pleasure wholeheartedly with every fiber of my being was not that I didn't hear the gospel or had heard the gospel. I'd, my parents made me go to church every week. I sat there and listened to the preacher. I had to go to youth group sometimes. I'd listen to the gospel shared there. I, I was there, I, and it wasn't that I was dumb. I mean, I was a teenage boy, so there's a certain level that comes with that, but I was not so dumb that I couldn't figure something out. It was that I was spiritually blind. 
Your friend, your family member that is, does not know Christ right now that you are burdened for, their greatest issue, despite what they say with their mouth to you, is not intellectually, emotional, or sociological. It is spiritual. So how do you deal with the spiritual? You intercede for them. You pray for them. Because the Holy Spirit has to enter their heart and begin to open their eyes to see the gospel. To see Christ as beautiful because 1 Corinthians also, uh, back in 1 Corinthians, tells us that right now it's just foolishness to them. The gospel is foolishness. Listen, if there's not a part of you as a follower of Jesus that listens to the gospel and goes, man, that sounds really crazy. (laughs) I mean, if there's not a part of you that goes, this is just insane. I, 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 I can recognize that. We believe a, a, a man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago was actually God. And that his death somehow pays the price for all of our sin. So that now God gives us eternal life now into eternity forever. Yeah, of course it's not going to make sense. Apart from the spirit. Listen, we need to recapture the burden of intercession for others. Some of you in this room right now know that you know that you're sitting here following Jesus because someone interceded for you, just like me. And God's inviting you onto the playground to, to, to participate now. You're here because someone prayed for you. Will someone else be here because you prayed for them? Listen. We are giving our attention to lesser things. It is an inappropriate response to this invitation to intercede, to waste time in comfort and distraction and and overwork when we've been invited to change eternal things. I just want to let that rest on you. I, I... as I was preparing this message, God just really convicted me. I, I, I will feel a conviction to intercede for people if they reach a certain relational circle close enough to me. Beyond that, I'm not going to spend much time praying for you, like interceding in, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual sense. And God convicted me. I, I don't pray for my neighbors enough. I don't. I don't lay their names before the Lord, asking him to open their eyes to the gospel. I don't go before them asking the Lord to meet them in their their struggles and challenges and difficulties of life. I don't, but I want to. And God's inviting you into that, to get your heart in line with Jesus's and unleash the spirit's power around you. So I'm gonna, you know, a lot of sermons I'll make application, then you got to go home and figure out how to apply it or actually do it. But I, th- I think the Lord wants us to do it right here, right now. So I'm going to ask you if you feel comfortable, close your eyes. We're literally only going to take 30 seconds to a minute. But I want you to ask the Lord to give you a person right now, bring that person to your mind to pray for, and then pray for them right now.
don't have time to unpack them, but three upcoming opportunities around this that you need to be aware of. One is uh, we're starting the Who's Your One campaign next Sunday. Uh, if you've been around Koa, you know this, but it's basically saying uh, we're we're asking you to identify one person in your sphere or circle who is not following Christ. That, that God's going to have you pray for every single day for 30 days. Uh, we have a prayer guide that'll go out. Um, so you can go to register on our website for that and sign up for uh, to receive that. Um, and we'll, we're, that's going to lead right up to the beginning of Holy Week. So the goal is you're going to pray. We want community groups to be praying for each other's ones as well. And then the challenge with it is to pray and then take one step of faith with that person between now and Holy Week. The second is we're going to have sharing your faith, a sharing your faith panel, literally 25, 30 minutes uh, right after the service on March 30th. Um, it's about sharing your faith, how to how to engage those around you without being pushy or weird. Uh, we're going to look at the stages of, of people coming to faith in Christ from a, a hardcore secular person to uh, that person who crosses that threshold into faith uh, and what steps they typically go through. And then uh, finally, uh, after Easter, and you can begin thinking about this, uh, we're going to have a a little study uh, called Ask Anything. And it's really designed for those who are outside of the faith to ask anything about Christianity. And then we're going to take the top six uh, answers and we're going to spend six weeks in a small group study. Uh, So it's a great opportunity to ask your friend what they would ask and then invite them to come to the Ask Anything uh, when we do it. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, offer to have someone pray for you today, uh, to intercede for you. Um, through the rest of the service, Victoria will be over here by the window to, to pray for anyone who wants intercessory prayer. Um, I'll be uh, also in the back if I can pray for you in any way. Um, but we're going to move into a time of communion and response. Uh, for some of you, communion is not the step you need to take today because you're not yet following Christ. It's for those who have crossed that threshold, who believe now, who have experienced new life in Christ. And so your next step is baptism. Uh, if you are believing in Christ, you're ready to take that step. Baptism is the initiation right into the family, and communion is the family meal. So if you're a follower of Jesus, anytime over this next song, I encourage you to stand. Uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and stand. Um, and you can begin to, to slip out anytime over this next song and take uh, communion. And as you do, just remember that Jesus took the righteous judgment of God for you. He did. And he is wanting to make you, like Abraham, a righteous follower of his. And he's inviting you into the kingdom. This is the kingdom meal. It's meant to be a tiny taste of the feast that we will have one day in the final kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth. So take communion knowing your sins are forgiven. Take communion knowing your hope is secure. Let's go ahead and stand and respond together.